Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Well, this is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dr Katani. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest breakthroughs, and I think this one qualifies cat as certainly being meteoric. Absolutely. Yes, this is about the origins of life on Earth, which is a hotly debated topic among scientists. Now, one theory suggests that even if whole organisms didn't come to Earth carried by meteorites, then maybe meteorites brought some of the building blocks to make amino acids. These are the chemicals that make up proteins. Now, tests on a meteorite with the catchy name of CR2 Grave Nunatax 95229 provides more evidence that meteorites might have brought these building blocks to Earth, kick-starting the chain of events that led to the evolution of life here. So what is this meteorite and why is this particular one so special? Well, this is a type of meteorite called a carbonaceous chondrite and these are meteorites that contain a range of organic matter, including amino acids. Now, because of this, some scientists think that they might have seeded life using these chemicals when they fell from space, providing the primitive building blocks for the formation of DNA and proteins, which ultimately led to life as we know it. But studies of similar meteorites haven't actually come up with solid evidence for this because the chemicals are a real mix of all sorts of things, most of which aren't really these fundamental building blocks that could be used to create the molecules of life. Now, this grave meteorite spun off from an asteroid and landed in Antarctica back in 1995. And researchers led by Sandra Pizzarello and her colleagues in the US analysed the chemical makeup of the meteorite using high-pressure water and a temperature of 300 degrees centigrade. And those are conditions designed to both mimic the asteroid where the meteorite was made and the conditions on the early Earth. And what, what happened? Well, they published their results in the journal PNAS this week and they discovered that their asteroid actually contains a surprisingly high amount of ammonia. This is a chemical precursor to amino acids and the levels were much higher than you might expect on Earth at the time. Why is that important? Well, given the chemical makeup of similar meteorites and the fact that most of them only contain compounds built up of rings of carbon atoms, sort of hydrocarbons, this is quite unusual and it's the first find of its kind. And further analysis showed that the ammonia in the meteorite could have only come from the original asteroid where, where the meteorite was born and it suggests that there was actually a lot of ammonia around in that environment. But what does this actually tell us about spawning life on Earth? How does it link to that? Well, nitrogen, which is a key part of ammonia, is the fourth most common reactive element in the whole universe. And here on Earth, it's a vital component of proteins as well as DNA and RNA, the genetic information within living cells, and it is completely indispensable for life. Now, ammonia plays a key role in many chemical reactions, including the reactions that created these molecules of life. But from what we know of the conditions on the early Earth, it's been really hard for scientists to figure out how this might actually have worked. For a start, the evidence suggests that the early Earth's atmosphere just didn't have a lot of ammonia in it. And we do know that sunlight can break down ammonia, which would have been a big problem. But the discovery that meteorites can actually contain relatively large amounts of free ammonia suggests an alternative route for this chemical to turn up and get involved in the chemical action that might have led to the generation of these molecular building blocks of life all those millions of years ago. And it does add weight to the idea that at least some of the molecules that kick-started life on Earth may have come from space. So it basically 
injects the right sort of chemistry in the right place at the right time and this is what then enables life to capitalise on that nitrogen source and start using it. Exactly, it's providing free ammonia in the right form, in the right time, in the right place. Thank you very much, Kat. Well, one thing that caught my eye this week, uh, there's a paper which was published in the journal Nature by Kun Zhang and his colleagues. He's a researcher at the University of California, San Diego. And they were looking at stem cells because, obviously, very important stem cells. We have the opportunity with them, potentially, to revolutionise medical treatments. We could take a person's own cells, like a skin cell, and by using various reprogramming techniques that have now been developed, you can produce stem cells from adult cells, and those stem cells, which are called induced pluripotent stem cells, can then be persuaded chemically to turn into almost any other tissue in the body so you could therefore repair damaged body parts using these cells as a a sort of starting material and because they're your own cells there's no problem with the immune system rejecting them. Big question was asked though by this group at UCSD which is that what is the genetic integrity of these cells? Are they actually safe? And surprisingly no one had actually asked this question before and what they do very elegantly in this paper is that they go to seven different laboratories and ask them for 22 different lines of stem cells that have been made and they genetically sequence those stem cells and then they go to the cells that they were made from and they genetically sequence those and they compare the two. Now Obviously, if the stem cells have got full genomic integrity and there's no damage to their DNA happening, then one should match the other. But the team were actually quite surprised to find at least tenfold more mutations, DNA changes, in the derived stem cells than they should have done based on cells that were just kept in culture for as long as these cells were, compared with the parents. And this suggests that actually these changes have been introduced by the reprogramming process. Well, this sounds like pretty bad news because obviously if you get mutations in cells then it can make them do all sorts of weird things like turn into cancer. Why do they think these changes might have happened? Well, they don't know exactly why this happens. When these cells are reprogrammed, what that means is that usually up to four genes are added. You can do this via a variety of techniques. Often a genomic uh, or a genetically modified virus is used to deliver these extra genes. And it might be that this, in the process of doing that, it makes the cells become vulnerable to their DNA getting damaged. But there's also a, a slightly more interesting suggestion that they put forward in their paper, which is that it might be a selection phenomenon. In other words, the kinds of genes that are getting changed might make the cells, when those genes are changed, grow better. And therefore, the ones that are more likely to be in the culture are the ones that grow the best and outgrow all of the ones that don't have these changes. And the evidence for that is that they looked at the way DNA changes. And there's one way that DNA can change called a synonymous mutation. And what that means is that although you change a genetic letter in the DNA, you don't actually change the protein that the DNA codes for, for various reasons. Now, you can also get another kind of mutation called a non-synonymous mutation, and that's where you change the DNA sequence and it changes the protein recipe and the cell behaves differently. Now, if the DNA was being mutated randomly, the numbers of those sorts of DNA changes should be relatively equal, the synonymous and the non-synonymous ones. Actually, when they check for that, they find that the non-synonymous ones occur two and a half times more commonly than the synonymous ones. And this suggests that the cells are gaining functions in some way, which is making them grow better, and therefore they're more being more likely to get selected for, for growing, and therefore that's why this has come up. It'd be really interesting to see how this kind of research maps onto the research that's being done in cancer stem cells, which obviously uh, a similar problem is when stem cells go rogue in the body. So uh, fascinating stuff. 
Also in the news this week, researchers at Rice University have developed a new way to etch structures into stacked piles of graphene, the marvellous material consisting of a single layer of carbon atoms. Now, this could allow manufacturers to make computer chips from graphene in much the same way as they currently do for silicon. But sometimes in science, you make a great discovery entirely by accident. And this was just one of those cases, as Professor Jim Tour explained to Chris earlier this week. What we set out to do was to convert graphene to graphane. And what that is, is taking the carbon structure of graphene, which is a bunch of six-membered rings in a plane, and attaching hydrogen to it. That makes then graphane, and that would make an area that would be non-conductive. And we thought if we could pattern zinc upon graphene, We could then use the hydrogen that's generated from the zinc reduction reaction from where zinc is treated with acid to hydrogenate the graphene to graphane. But what happened was it turned out that wherever the the zinc landed, it removed the graphene layer but left the underlying layer completely intact. It's really reminiscent of what people do with silicon and lasers to make microchips, isn't it? But you're doing this using zinc and graphene, which is interesting because people are talking about using graphene as a material to make the next generation of microchips. Precisely. And so this constitutes lithography. Lithography is the way we make computer chips. You take a big silicon wafer and you chip away at it using chemicals and light to make the small features, namely transistors and wires, for example. So one takes a mask and has certain areas, holes in the mask, and then shines light through those holes, and that will develop what are called resists on top of the silicon to develop the silicon and build up these structures that we've seen on chips. But now to be able to do this in graphene brings graphene one step closer. And so there is a huge difference between a monolayer and a bilayer of graphene. A monolayer of graphene is a metal. It doesn't have a band gap. It's not something that's easily made into a transistor. But if you have two layers of graphene, it opens up a gap and it becomes a little bit more like silicon where you can make it into a transistor. And so to be able to have one layer or two layers or three layers, which can be more conductive, then you you can have different devices next to each other. And that's what you want. You want to have uh, heterogeneity in devices. You don't want all devices to be exactly the same. So it's it's a new tool in the toolbox for making graphene into electronic chips. Do you actually know, though, Jim, what the zinc is doing, why this actually works, to strip away these single layers and leave the one underneath untouched? I think we have a reasonable idea. So what happens is is the zinc is sputtered on the surface, so that will cause zinc atoms to fly up from a chunk of zinc metal and to hit the surface that we're trying to pattern. And you make a mask, and wherever you want the metal to go, you have holes in the mask, and it hits the surface. So what happens is about 0.5% of the zinc atoms come with enough energy to actually knock out a carbon atom from the graphene and substitute in with a zinc atom. The zinc metal has a very high oxidation potential, so it's really begging to oxidize rather rapidly, and that's going to then leave, cause the zinc atom to come out, and you'll get an oxygen-carbon bond. So wherever a zinc atom had been, now the carbon atom is knocked out, and the surrounding 
carbon atoms become oxygenated. So what you end up with is instead of a sheet of graphene now, you have a sheet of graphene with holes in it. Then what's done is we put it into acid, and acid then strips away the zinc, and in stripping away the zinc, it generates hydrogen. And that bubbles, and that helps to wash away these small pieces of graphene that have now been diced up on the surface. But the zinc atoms that hit never had enough energy to go through one layer and affect the second layer below. And so it turns out to be quite a selective technique that's not only uh, shown now with zinc. We showed we could do it with aluminum as well. So that's a reasonable uh, understanding that we have now of the mechanism. And once you cut through by substituting oxygens onto some of these areas so they may be removed and floated off, the residual graphene from the layer where you've got, say, a step, is the bit that remains behind stable or will that chemically deteriorate with time? Everything that we have seen at the step edge where you have one sheet of graphene that is one step higher than the sheet below it, that is stable. We haven't seen that curling up. We haven't seen that undergoing any problem. It undoubtedly has different atoms at the edge. There's going to have to be either hydrogen atoms or oxygen atoms at that very edge. But no, there is no delamination that occurs. The other fascinating point about this is lithography is always done in the industry, but we have hit the ultimate in lithography. It is single atom layer precision. It will never get better than this. So in other words, in a thousand years, if they're doing lithography, they can't do better than this. We are stripping off a single atomic layer. You can't cut an atom in half. That's as thin as you're going to get. This shows that we can have precision that you could never have in silicon, single atom resolution. And you think that this will be a practical way to make, if you had to, a microchip of the future using graphene as a base material? It's certainly a new wrench in the toolbox. There was no way to do this before. So if we are going to make large-scale patterns out of graphene, this is definitely a way to do it. And it uses methodologies that are commonly used in silicon manufacture. So there you have it, a technique that will never be bettered for a thousand years. Uh, that was Professor Jim Tour from Rice University talking about his work that may make ousting silicon from its position at the heart of the microprocessor industry that little bit easier. And he's published that in the journal Science this week. Beautiful paper, actually. There's a little nano owl that they've made etched in graphene, if you want to go and have a look at the paper. Now, another interesting discovery that was announced this week relates to the female genital tract because uh, there's an interesting observation that's been made here that there are large amounts of antibody in this area because obviously it's a portal of entry for infection and you've got to defend anything where you could get infected somehow and what the researchers have found is that there are antibodies there but they're the same kinds of antibodies that normally go around in the bloodstream. So they're obviously doing a very important job, but the big question is, how do they get there? Because if we can work out how they get there, then we might be able to work out how to put even more of them there and make even better vaccines and treatments for things like sexually transmitted infections, which, if you're in a country where HIV is extremely prevalent, could save your life. And what Xiaoping Zhu and his colleagues have published in the journal PNAS this week, this, they're from the University of Maryland, is an amazing discovery really because they took cell samples from all the different types of tissue you find in the female genital tract and they looked at which genes were being expressed there and they found that one particular gene, which is called FCRN, is intriguing because this is the same gene that a developing baby 
turns on in the placenta to grab antibodies from the mum's bloodstream and put them into the baby's bloodstream so that when the baby comes out, it has what's called passive immunity. It's protected for a little while while its own immune system learns to experience the environment and defend the baby. So it gets it, it sort of borrows its immune system from its mother, if you like. And what the mature or adult female is doing is using the same gene to take antibody from the bloodstream and put it onto the epithelial, in other words, skin surface, to protect this this site. And the researchers then go on to prove using mice, if you delete this gene, this FCRN gene, then the mice can no longer defend themselves in this way. So it's doing a very important job. Now we understand how it works, it might be possible to then exploit this to make vaccines that actually put even more antibody than the current generations of antibodies do onto that site and provide enhanced protection. I shall never look at my lady bits in the same way again. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for all our news stories are online at thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.